Hey, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast. We're giving my wife, Dr. Celine Gounder, a day off from the pod, but we've got a fantastic interview with LAFC coach Bob Bradley that touches on a ton of things in his long career. A quick reminder, if you like the podcast, it would really help us out if you go to Apple Podcasts and provide a rating and a review, and we'd appreciate you recommending the podcast to someone you know. Onward! Our guest today is a guy I go back to 1992 with uh, at Princeton University. I was a student uh, reporter for the paper there. He was the men's soccer coach. He's Bob Bradley, the head coach of LAFC. Thanks for coming on the show, Bob. All right, Grant. We do go back uh, a few years, so that part's pretty uh, pretty interesting. Uh, first off, I just want to ask, how are you doing, you and your family? Uh, we're good. Um, keeping tabs on everybody. We're spread out as always, but uh, the ability to check in every day, FaceTime, group FaceTime, make sure everybody uh, is, is got what they need. That part really helps. And then, you know, in some ways you're doing the same things between players and staffs and friends and colleagues. So it's, uh, it's been a big part of what goes on uh, during these days. So we're in the middle of a global and national crisis right now. And of all the people I know in the soccer world, you've had the most experience dealing with crises in a public way when you were the coach of the Egyptian national team. Could you fill our listeners in on what was going on in Egypt at that time and, and how you tried to handle that? Uh, yes. Um, uh, you know, the revolution in Egypt was in January of 2011. Uh, ironically, the uh, U.S. was supposed to play a friendly in Cairo in uh, February of 2011. Of course, that never happened. Uh, and then I became the coach uh, in October. And so uh, after the revolution, Mubarak was out. Uh, when I arrived, um, there had not yet been an election. Uh, obviously, it, it was the, the back end of Arab Spring. Uh, and there was certainly uh, uh, no clear idea of what, what would happen in the country moving forward. And, you know, the early days I would ask people what's different now than before. And the, the simple answer that I always got is that uh, when Mubarak was taken down, that uh, people felt that they could get away with more. And that the, without military rule, that people were out and about and, and that there was a little more lawlessness. But it never felt, uh, on my end, it never felt like a problem. It was just trying to uh, get a feel for, for what was going on in the country. Uh, I think I would, had been there for a week and there was a, a protest uh, uh, that turned violent and some, some people were killed. and and. And my first thought was, I started asking questions about uh, what happened uh, when there's protest, who goes, is there one group, is there three groups, uh, are there people that get put there uh, just to cause trouble? And, and immediately I realized that nobody had any answers. And, and, and I had this overriding feeling that... Uh, it was impossible for the average person in Egypt to ever know the truth. And uh, it's weird to think that uh, in some ways that's, that's how it feels uh, in our country now. So, you know, it, it, it depended on where you got news. Uh, you know, so often somebody would hear something, tell someone else, and it would get passed on a lot of times. And then it would be repeated and people would take it as fact, but nobody really knew who said it first. And, and so, you know, I remember that part very clearly. Uh, that became even more the case when on February 1st, 2012, there was uh, this massacre in uh, Port Said. Um, a lot of people have heard me talk about that day, uh, uh, the feeling of, of loss with 74 young fans losing their lives, uh, questions, never any answers. 
and, and so it was a country that was divided. And uh, the incredible thing was still that, that the guys on the, the national team, uh, they'd come into camps, they, they, the league had stopped. Uh, we had a qualifier that, that was coming up in June, the first one uh, against Mozambique. Uh, but those guys were so proud and so motivated to be part of the national team. And, you know, we always just tried to make sure that uh, maybe we could be an example of what it meant to be united when so much of the country was divided. So, you know, it, it was different than what we face now because uh, in the weeks after the, the massacre in Port Said, uh, I went to Ali Club. I saw the players. Uh, you know, I was at the memorial. Uh, Lindsay, Zaki, and I marched uh, in a protest uh, to show, you know, solidarity with the people who had lost their lives. So you had interaction. And just the idea that you could see people, see their eyes, understand what was going on, that made a big difference. And, and now, obviously, we all miss a lot of that. And, and therefore, we end up trying to do it. Uh, you know, with FaceTime and with Zoom and WebEx and everything else. So that part's very different. I remember we talked a little bit in the past about information sources, and you just, you know, mentioned that it there is some similarity uh, here in the U.S. in terms of uh, in the present day, there's very different types of information and, and trust is sometimes hard. What are you doing for your own information uptake these days? Uh, that, you know, I, I, I really try to understand what's going on. And that certainly means you've got to try to read. Uh, you've got to try to find people that, that you think you can trust. Uh, the trust issue right now is, is just so important because obviously so often people stand up uh, people who are supposed to be leaders say things that aren't true, uh, misinformation, uh, all of this becomes even more difficult to, to work through when you, when you consider uh, the social media world that we live in. So, uh, yeah, I try to work hard at it. Um, you know, I, I, I think one thing that I've always had is... Uh, an ability to, to look at a situation and to, to try to go deep into what, what's going on. And, you know, when I was in Egypt, I found out that that's just not something that everybody has. Uh, uh, you know, in, in, in Egypt at that time, uh, it was so easy to, to see what was on the surface. But that didn't really matter so much because there were so many forces at work beneath the surface uh, that, that influenced information. And uh, if you apply that to, to what's going on right now between political agendas, between uh, ratings, between uh, self-promotion, ego, uh, all of those kind of things, uh, when, when, you know, your wife's a doctor and, and I still find it incredible the number of doctors that choose to speak and in many cases, you're not really sure what their motivation is. And, and so even, even amongst doctors trying to sort through who are the ones that you believe provide real information, who are the ones that uh, are, are speaking up loudly for other reasons, uh, and I'm not always sure that the media does a good job of this. Uh, obviously, all of us have to pick. When we put the TV on, what channel do we go to? And, uh, you know, from my time living outside the country, probably first and foremost, I'm a, I'm a CNN guy, uh, CNN International, I always felt was pretty creditable. Uh, you know, CNN in our country, there, there are people on it that I appreciate and respect. There are others that maybe I'm not quite as high on. Uh, I'm absolutely not a Fox guy, but every now and then I, I put it on just to hear what's being said. Um, so I have some idea as to what's coming out of that. And when I try to put all of it together, 
you know, I, I sent you some messages the other day about hydroxychloroquine and uh, I have had some experience with infection. I, I had a knee surgery years ago that uh, led to infection and I dealt with three or four infectious disease doctors. And I know that at that time I got different information from all of them. Um, you know, I ended up uh, dealing pro uh, mostly with a, a doctor out here in California and, and in the end, we got through it, and I had a lot of respect for him. Um, but others at times were very strong with their opinions and questioning what path I was on. And so now I, I, I try to understand everything that's going on with something like hydroxychloroquine. Uh, and I, I certainly know that in the long term, studies are needed to really understand how it fits in. Um, but you... You can get one doctor who says it's working, I'm prescribing it, and then you can get another doctor that says uh, just because it's working doesn't mean that that, uh, just because people are getting better, that doesn't mean that hydroxychloroquine actually had anything to do with, with them improving. And, and, and so, uh, you know, my point to you the other day is, is there are families that have loved ones that are now in hospitals and when they're trying to figure out advice and when they're trying to understand what path should be taken, uh, I feel badly for those people because I don't know what route they got, uh, what route they go to, to gather this information. So uh, it's a challenge. It's a big challenge. How important do you think it is during a crisis, whether it's in Egypt or whether it's the one we're in right now, to find reasons to smile? Uh, Yes, you have to look life in terms of having perspective, uh, being able to laugh, uh, being able to cry, uh, making sure that, that you're connected uh, with people uh, is so important. So yes, we use this, this phrase, social distance, distancing, um, you know, and I know that a lot of the the experts say that that's actually not a good phrase. It should be physical distancing. Uh, and, and, and so the ability when, when you do connect with people to talk about serious matters, but to still find other things, whether it's football, whether it's music, whether it's uh, a good story. Uh, yeah, I think that those things are important. So perspective uh, for me has always been something that uh, you want to try to do the best you can as a leader to give the people around you perspective that uh, at any given moment uh, you can see beyond just what's good for you. And, and I, I think that's a big part of leadership. And, you know, during these periods, uh, you know, we, we hear a lot about leadership, but, but this idea of what strong leadership is, uh, what does it mean? What does it look like? Uh, do we have really strong, good leaders? Uh, I think a lot about that um, because uh, in so many cases, uh, people that, that should be leaders just they don't do a good enough job. And, and look, in its simplest form, I just don't think you can be a leader if uh, you stand in front of people, whether it's your team, uh, your city, your state, or your country, and just say things that aren't true. And, and, and so, uh, you know, I know that, that in all my years as a coach, uh, I've certainly made all sorts of mistakes. Um, but I do know that every time... I stand in front of the team or anytime I have a one-on-one -on -one with a player, uh, my thoughts are real. My thoughts are, are the things that, that I think need to be done for us to get somewhere, for us to get better, for that player to grow up, uh, become a better guy, become a better player. And it doesn't mean in that moment that I'm right. Um, you know, I'm probably wrong more than I'm right. But that ability to share real thoughts 
uh, that ability to look at people and tell them things that maybe they don't want to hear. Um, but that's, that's how you see it. And then to get to the point where you trust each other, uh, I think that that part of leadership is key. And I, I, I see so many examples that uh, just don't get anywhere close to uh, leading in those ways. So on a day-to-day basis right now, what are you doing with your coaching staff? What are you doing with your players? Uh, let's start with the players. Um, it's hard. All of them uh, are handling it in different ways. Uh, some are scared. Some don't want to leave the apartment. Um, some don't really have a good idea of what's going on. Uh, I, I think our performance staff has done an incredible job staying connected with them. Um, workouts, uh, you can do things collectively, but the reality is that everybody's in a different situation. And, and, and so there's got to be a lot of individual work with, with players uh, to make sure that they have with what they need. Uh, you know, some guys might be fortunate enough that they've got a real ability to work out. Some guys might have uh, uh, maybe even a treadmill in the house. Right? Not many, but, but maybe some. Uh, and others live in a small apartment and they don't have anything. And, and so our performance guys have done a fantastic job. Uh, and then I think I try to stay connected with all the players. It's a message. It's a phone call. We do a little bit of group stuff. Uh, I, I'm not one that thinks that, that just contrived group stuff is the answer. Um, so, so, you know, I think there's a time to do it, but, but I don't think that we, uh, we, we just try to create things um, unless we think there's real meaning there. And, and, and so, you know, sometimes I find it much more uh, important to have a 10 minute conversation with somebody where I, maybe I can find out exactly what's going on hear how his family's doing, uh, than it is to just see somebody's face on a zoom, uh, team call. So, uh, yeah, I, I think on that end, that's what we're doing. Staff is different because, uh, one of the things that we pride ourselves on, uh, around here is that the discussions that start early every morning, uh, the ability to challenge people and engage people, uh, get them to, to think about our team, players, ideas, training, methodology. Uh, you know, I think we have a really cool environment. Uh, I think we have a great culture and, and that ability to engage everyone around you. Again, if you talk about leadership, I think that's an important skill as a leader. And uh, so we miss that part of being together, but, but we have taken to uh, zoom in that regard. And, and, you know, I, I gave these guys uh, uh, something last week where I said, find a couple clips, any game you want, could be us, could be uh, another team around the world. Uh, you could connect two or three clips. You can pick uh a clip from our game with Philadelphia, find a Liverpool clip and then find a clip from training and show me how you think some of the things that we're working on are all connected. And obviously using shared screen, that means that for some part of that meeting, each coach gets a chance to show what's on his mind. And the video part of it ends up being clear. We're all looking at the same pictures. We can stop, start, rewind, go through again. So uh, I think from, from the standpoint of, of creating good football discussions, uh, that's happened. And actually, I've ended up doing that with all sorts of guys around the world. You know, uh, Tomic Kashmarik, some, some people might know him. Uh, I think Tomic was, was um, in We Must Go. And, yeah. and he was a young uh, assistant in Egypt who then was with me in Norway. He grew up in Poland. Uh, I'm sorry, he grew up in, in Germany, but uh, he's Polish. Uh, most recently, he's been an assistant at a Pogon Chichesten. And, and so 
he'll watch our trainings and he'll send me questions and I'll send him clips from training and, and get his thoughts. I do the same with uh, Jan Peter Jaland, who was my assistant at Stavik in Norway. Uh, he'll send me clips. He now coaches Norway's under 15s and under 17s. So sharing clips, uh, sharing ideas, uh, that part still uh, is important because all coaches right now are, are finding ways to uh, stay engaged and, and stay sharp. And, and, and so it, I, I have back and forth with different guys uh, where maybe I'll read something that they're saying and I'll send a quick message and say, uh, why did you say that? Here's, a th- uh, here's something from our training. What do you think of this? And it means for a little bit of time we, we can share the game. Uh, I've done it with some players. You know, I had a, a back and forth with Benny Fallhaber in the last few days um, talking a little bit about coaching ideas because maybe that's something Benny's thinking about. So, you know, uh, the game is still important to all of us and we miss it. Uh, and, and so as, you go, as I go through days, yes, I'm thinking about news. I'm thinking about hydroxychloroquine, you know, today I'm, I'm reading early this morning about the idea that some doctors think that, that we're ventilating too early and, and ventilating too much uh, and that there's now discussion that, uh, you know, that, that in reality it, it might resemble more like, uh, like high altitude sickness. And, and, and that it's, it's more about oxygen, oxygen and pressure. And, and so, again, I don't know some of these doctors, but I find some of these ideas interesting. So I'm, I'm spending time on that. Uh, I'm making sure that, that once I move out of that, that I'm staying connected with people and, and spending time on football. What do you personally miss the most with soccer being shut down right now? Uh, I miss the day, the day-to-day uh, connection with everybody. Um, I mentioned earlier, uh, we start early. Uh, I really feel that that it it's a discussion every day that's exciting, uh, that leads into training. Uh, I love when when guys come in in the morning, seeing the camaraderie. Uh, uh, when we get on the field, creating a training session that guys are uh, into. Uh, seeing the passion, seeing uh, uh, the love of the game. So I miss that part. Um, any team that I've ever coached, uh, club team, national team, the ability to create uh, a culture where people can't wait to get there. Uh, you know, one of the things that, that I said from the first day when I was the national team coach in the U.S. and I tried to carry on with Egypt, um, was just that even though it's not a club team, when you have a camp, you've got to create an environment where the guys can't wait to get there. They can't wait to see their friends. They understand that as soon as they arrive, that they know what's going to happen. There's a routine. Uh, you know, there's football discussions. There's banter. Uh, this is all key. And, and so in these moments, I miss that the most. I wanted to ask you about a replay that was shown in the last 24 hours here of the game in 2009 when you were the U.S. coach and the U.S. was playing Costa Rica in Washington, D.C. You had just clinched a berth in the World Cup uh, a few days before that. And it was such a memorable situation for so many different reasons. Obviously, the, the car accident with, with Charlie Davies uh, being so seriously injured uh that also was the game in which Aguchi Anyewu injured his knee severely. Johnny Borenstein scores very late in that game to uh, have a, a situation where Honduras qualified that night and, and Costa Rica was eventually eliminated. Um, did you watch that game or, or and, and what what are your thoughts when you think back to what was happening during that stretch? Uh, I did watch part of that game last night. Uh, Lindsay had it on and, and I was done with a few other things. Uh, 
we were eating, but, but the game was on. And, and I remember uh, every detail from not only the game, but from, from all the, the days around it. And, uh, yeah, it's hard to believe that that, that uh, is more than 10 years ago. Um, but uh, I, I, I think that all of us that, that were eh, – maybe I shouldn't say all of us. I think that most of us that were part of those national teams um, – have real pride in what we were all about. And, you know, one of the things I've always said is that uh, people on the outside may see it, may not see it, but if you're on the inside of something and you have real experiences, those are things that no one can ever take away from you. And, and when I see most of those guys, um, there's a feeling that, that we had real teams that we had real guys. Um, you know, I use that word real a lot because it's a simple way of just saying that, uh, that the, the relationships, the work, the, the trust, uh, there was no bullshit, that it was just uh, uh, a bunch of people who were excited to be together um, with a real common goal, didn't always go everybody's way every day, but that there was a real sense of, of what we were trying to do and what we were all about. And, and so when I watched that game, um, I, I, I had that feeling again. And, and that part uh, has never left me. And I, I, was, I, I was excited because you know, when you see a group and you see the way they went about it, when you see the way they express their feelings for Charlie, um, yeah, that just, that, 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 that's a result of, of how you operate every day. And, uh, you know, I, I, I actually spent time yesterday, I was going through some video, and while I was looking at the games, uh, I put on uh, the interview that Hercules Gomez did with Charlie. Uh, it was a long one. I think it was like an hour and 40 minutes. Uh, he took Charlie through his career from being a kid in New Hampshire to youth soccer, Boston College, Hammerby national team, uh, and then right on to, to today. And, uh, you know, I, look, the, 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 the thing with Charlie that, everyone would always say is that he, he was just always a guy that everybody liked. Um, even when he first came into the national team and he had a lot to learn, uh, people loved him. And, and, and so uh, I always appreciate that. Uh, it was, I've heard him talk a little bit about everything, but probably this was the most I ever, the most detail that I ever heard him go into. Um, I'd never actually say, heard him say, uh, about the guilt that he had for letting his teammates down. Um, so that was the first time I, that I actually, that I actually heard him say that. Uh, and, and, you know, I watched the game and, uh, you know, as I do quite often at, at the end of the night, I sent a quick message to Charlie, uh, cause I read maybe something that he put out on Twitter, basically saying how much he loved his teammates. And I, you know, I just said that uh, uh, I'm proud uh, of what we had together and that I'm really proud of the, uh, the man and the father and the husband he's become. So, and he sent something back. So, you know, those kind of small relationships, uh, are important and and so when I watched that game those were the things that uh, came to mind thanks for sharing that I appreciate that 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Um, when the soccer season is going on, you watch a lot of games, I know, from around the world. How many games a week would you say you watch? And, and what are you looking for when you, when you watch a game? Uh, it's impossible to say how many games because I watch... If you just go by bits and pieces of games, it would be too many to keep track of. Um, what do I look for? I, I look for uh, ideas in ways teams play. Um, I look for identities in teams. Uh, you know, something I've talked a lot about with our staff is uh, – that more and more with scouting and, and spiel verlagerung and incredible analysis uh, that I really believe that, that your ability to not be a scripted team, to have ideas, but to not be so mechanical in how you do them. Uh, teams want to press. And if you build the same way every single time, then the cues that they're looking for are easy to figure out. But if you are more fluid and more free-flowing, if you have an ability uh, to go quickly from your defending moments to your attacking moments, uh, that these are really important things. And, and uh you know, when I, when I talk with different coaches, uh, there's many ways to look at the game. And I, uh, I don't think my ways are right, um, but I believe pretty strongly in certain things. And, you know, one of the things I'm always trying to get across to young coaches is, is that uh, it's important to see the game as a whole. Uh, you can break it down and, and – in so many coaching courses, uh, they'll talk about phases of play as though you work on each one separately. And, and I just don't think that's how the game works. I think phases of play tie together. And I, I mentioned my assistant, Jan, uh, in Norway, and, and people used to ask him what it was like to work with me. And he would say that in Norway, and it's true in the United States, when you're going through coaches, coaching courses as a young coach, uh, that you're really uh, instructed to, to build a training session with a, a theme. And he would say to people that our training sessions might have a focus, but there was a package of things that got worked on every day. Uh, awareness, finding space, footwork, reactions, number of touches, because all these things go together. And, and, and so, uh, you know, I, I had a funny story uh, last week. I'm not going to say who, but somebody wrote a detailed piece on periodization, um, which is an interesting part of coaching. It's a word that a lot of people like to use and one that I almost never use. And this article on periodization basically went through how uh, in order, it, 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 it's, it's that you work on A so that then you can do B and then C. And, and it would literally be like if you were teaching somebody to ride a bike and, you know, you said the first day you just put your right foot on the right pedal and your left foot then balances and then when you get good at that then the next day maybe you think you can put your left foot on the pedal and th this stuff just blows me away and so anyway this article was written and I got something the next day from someone who who knows me as a coach and they said that uh if someone watched uh 
our teams play and someone watched our trainings and was given an assignment of writing the exact opposite of the way we worked, that that article had nailed it. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny because uh, that is, that was true. That's just not how it works. Uh, you know, the game has to be tied together. Attack goes with defense. Uh, so I watch teams and I look for things like that. I, I look for ideas where, um, you know, the, 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 the overall way that a team goes about playing its identity, its reactions, its understanding that in certain moments, um, this player may leave one thing and see a chance to go and help a teammate. And if it doesn't work and somebody else has to quickly go for him and how those things on the best teams happen so fast and so naturally, never perfect because the game's not meant to be perfect. So probably in, in this last couple of years, uh, more than anything, these are things that I appreciate and things that we try to build into our teams. So the last time we did an interview before this was in January, ahead of the MLS season, and you said some things that drew a lot of attention. Uh, we were talking about the next 25 years of MLS and what you wanted to see, and for you that included more inclusiveness in, in American soccer, uh, training compensation and solidarity payments, and promotion and relegation. Did you get any response from people in MLS after that? Nope. So people don't talk to me too much. I'm, I'm not on the, <laughs> I'm not on the good list. So uh, no, I, <laughs> I don't hear too much from anybody from, uh, from uh, high levels. So uh, no, I, I stick to doing my thing. I'm lucky to, to have the chance every day. So no, I didn't, I didn't get anything on that. <laughs> I have some friends that gave me thoughts, but that was it. There has been a lot of change at the U.S. Soccer Federation recently. We have a new president. We have a new CEO. Uh, the most influential U.S. soccer figures of the past two decades, at least from an administrative standpoint, are gone. The lawsuit between the U.S. women's national team players and the federation continues. What would you like to see happen at U.S. soccer in the coming years? Uh, strong leadership. Uh, and more detailed, in-depth discussions on what the game's about. Fair. Do you, do you feel like there's not enough soccer and too much business? or? Uh, no, there, there would be some football discussions. The question is who, who's in the room and what gets said and how deep is the understanding. Uh, so I think that's important. I don't think that there's been enough good ones over the years. Uh, you know, I, I've gotten in trouble in the past where I say uh, sometimes you got to figure out who needs to be in the room. People think when I say that that I'm uh, I'm arrogant. Uh, you know, look, maybe I'm not in the room. Maybe somebody else has a better one without me. That's fine. I, it has nothing to do with arrogance. It has to do with uh, a real understanding of details, uh, a real understanding of, of the kind of discussions that are necessary. Uh, how we develop players, how teams play, are we connecting with people all around the country? Uh, how are we doing giving kids opportunities? Do we find talent? Do we develop talent? When it gets to a certain age, what do we do? Uh, and so, yes, I, I, I don't think that we've had enough of those kind of discussions. Uh, you know, you mentioned the lawsuit. Uh, in its simplest form, it's impossible that you could have a legal team have a strategy and not have higher-ups know what that strategy is. That's impossible. All right? Either you're just not paying attention or you're not telling the truth, but that's impossible. So, you know, to be accountable every day, to, uh, to pay attention, to be – I'll say it again, to be real, uh, to have an idea of, of, of how people see you. Uh, you know, if, if, to be a real leader, you have to understand that when you, in whatever role you have, how are you viewed? Are you viewed as a guy who 
or when I say guy, let's be clear. I, I'm, I'm from New Jersey, so guy could be a man or a woman. So uh, I'm, I, I don't uh, use guy just for, uh, just for one side. But to be a leader, uh, you've got to understand what people look at you. Do they trust you? Do they think that you see a big picture? Do you represent everybody? Uh, do you do things that are just good for a few? Uh, if you don't understand all that, uh, or you maybe do understand it, but still choose to just take it in a direction that, that fits what's good only for a few, uh, that's not going to work. And, and I, I said those things earlier in the year because uh, we've got to, we, we've got to do a better job of making everybody feel that they're part of the game in this country. And that part just hasn't been handled well enough over the years. Are there any particular people you would like to see in that room at U.S. soccer or people who maybe are at U.S. soccer but haven't featured enough in the important decisions? Uh, there are, Grant. I, I don't have good names right now. You know, I, I get asked a lot, you know, if, if it were up to me, uh, you know, who, who would I bring in? Who would I get rid of? Uh, you know, I, I, I've not sat on the inside with certain people and, and just had real football discussions. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I, I know who the people are that I do have real football discussions with. Um, and that doesn't, I, I, I've said this now five or six times in this interview, that doesn't mean that we're right. Um, but I know that if I speak to Manfred Schulze, if I speak to Preki, um, two examples, uh, when we speak about the game, uh, it's a real discussion about the game. We may not agree, but there's details that get included. Um, if we watch games, we don't just discuss the result. We discuss the way the game was played. We discuss ideas. We discuss players. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, it's been a long time since I've been in all those discussions. Um, when I was national team coach, yes. At times you're in those discussions, and then you, 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 you look around the room, you hear what gets said, and then you, you – you know, any time of somebody speaks, it, it, at the end, you're either going to, your level of respect can go up, it can go down based upon uh, what they say, how they've said it, how detailed they are, how much they, they, they get a real picture. So I, I've not been in those discussions for a long time. I, I'm really lucky that there are people uh, – that I do stay in touch with that are friends and, and we challenge each other. Um, but I think that, that more of that must go on on a regular basis. And uh, yeah, without being there, it's hard to tell you who should be there and who shouldn't be there. I appreciate you taking this much time. I, I want to wrap up with something that I call my rapid fire quiz. I give this to players, especially some of the best players in America and in the world. Um, I like giving it to coaches every once in a while too. And I'll say this also for listeners, uh, it's the convention in journalism not to give someone the questions ahead of the interview, but I make an exception here. Uh, and you agreed to do this. And I think this the reason which I think listeners will understand very quickly here, you've actually had a chance to think about the answers to some of these questions, which is a good thing. Yeah, but you only gave me the questions like five minutes before we started. <laughs> so I didn't really have a chance to think too much. So <laughs> this is true. This is true. They could have given you a 20 minute heads up. Um, but it's the rapid fire quiz. Uh, but you know, don't need to go too, too fast if you have a, a more nuance in your answers. And, and the first question is, what is the most memorable victory of your career and why? Uh, I'll say the game against Algeria. Um, it was the culmination of that cycle. Uh, I talked earlier about the group, the commitment, um, the fact that that team uh, understood how to keep playing till the end all the time. 
and the feeling that we all shared on the field after that game, uh, having won the group, uh, that was a special moment. What is the most memorable defeat of your career and why? Uh, Kamasi, uh, 6-1 Ghana over Egypt. Uh, the amount of pressure that was on the Egyptian players, uh, everything on them on that day, they weren't themselves. And the only game I can, that I've ever watched where I had a similar feeling was when Brazil got crushed by Germany. Um, you know, that, that day I just looked in the eyes of, of, so many of the players and I just saw a blank and they were incredible guys. Um, uh, this is supposed to be rapid fire, but I, I will give you a really important story uh, that on the bus back to the hotel after the game, uh, I realized that if, uh, if they had their way, they would all just go back to their rooms and that would be it. And so, you know, we, we were staying in a small hotel in Kamasi. Uh, and I told them that when we got back, we were going to meet up on the, the floor where all the players uh, had their rooms. And, uh, you know, I, I, I told them how proud I was of them. Uh, I told them that uh, I knew how much they loved their country. And... Uh, and, and that, that they weren't themselves that day. The, the pressure of everything that was happening in the country that day uh, had just been too much. Um, but nothing could ever take away from everything that they had put into it. Uh, we had won the six games in our group. That was the only game we lost in qualifying. And... I just wanted them to still know how, how I felt about them. And, uh, uh, you know, I told them that day that uh, I said, look, we, we still play Ghana and there's a small chance. And it's pretty likely that when we get back, uh, my head will roll. Uh, but I'm going to tell all you guys right now, I'm going to fight like crazy to stand with you one more time. And, and if we get that chance, we're going to still go after that game and try as best we can to, to turn this thing around. And, and so, yeah, the next few weeks were crazy. Uh, it did look at some moment like I was going to be out the door, but I, I, uh, you know, maybe the fact that from day one in Egypt, when, when, Port Said happened and everything else, I never looked to leave. Maybe in some way that helped me. And we beat Ghana 2-1. Uh, wasn't enough. Um, but the feeling of that group after the game and, and uh, the feeling how, I, you know, I knew that for the rest of their lives, all those guys, uh, they're Egyptian. That was their country. Uh, as much as I was lucky to be there for two years, it wasn't my country. So to take the blame, take the responsibility, uh, for me, it was no problem because uh, I wanted all those guys always to be respected for, for what they had done during, uh, during that time. So that game will live with me forever. Before we did this interview, I went back and read the magazine story I wrote in 2013, right before that. It came out right before that 6-1. Uh, I had spent a few days with you in Cairo and, and felt like I got at least a, a sense of how powerful that connection was between you and your Egyptian team and, and the Egyptian people. So thanks for sharing that. I'll uh, still get uh, sometimes in, a, in an Uber and I'll have a driver and I'll see that they're looking in the rear view mirror and they'll say to me in a shaky, nervous voice, are you Bradley? And I'll say yes, and they'll say, I'm Egyptian, which certainly at that moment they don't need to tell me because I can spot Egyptians along 
from a long ways away. And they're incredible because every one of them will get emotional and, and say that I was there during a very tough time and that they, they know that I gave everything for their country. And uh, they're proud people and they're emotional people. And uh, yeah, I, I, I'll never forget that part. You know, Bob, it's kind of funny. Uh, whenever I go cover a U.S. qualifier away in Central America, I get people asking me if I'm Bradley, but they're asking if I'm Michael. Uh, so. Well, you're better off being asked if you're Michael than Bob, so that's a good thing for you. Uh, back to the, the quiz. Who are the three best players you have ever coached and why? Oh, boy, three best players. Krzysztof uh, Stoichkov, end of his career. Uh, but personality, power, intelligence, passion, you know, uh, the discussions that we had about his Barcelona teams, how they played, uh, those things have always stuck with me. Uh, and then the, the second one, it's interesting because it's Mohamed Salah. Mm -hmm. And... I started to work with Salah when he was 19. And at the very beginning, I looked at him, and the first person I thought of was, was Crystal mm. because of the power and the speed and the explosiveness and left foot and the ability to come from outside in and do incredible things. So, uh, you know, I, I, I showed Salah clips of Stoichkov and talked about things that, you know, I thought made sport, uh, Christo so special. And it's been uh, amazing for me to watch Salah uh, develop as a player and as a person. Uh, I hear from him all the time. He's an incredible guy. Uh, and I'm really proud of him. So I, I would say those two. Number three gets hard. Uh, you know, I coach Yuri Jerkayev. He's the only player that I ever coached who won a World Cup. Uh, obviously, you know, Carlos Vela is a similar player to Christos Stoichkov and Mohamed Salah. Um, you know, in the league, he's been incredible. Uh, Peter Novak, Lubos Kubik, Landon Clint, Abu Treka, I'm not sure. So it's pretty good players. Um, who is the best leader you have ever coached and why? Yeah, I just said Abu Treka in the last list, so maybe I'll stick with him. Uh, when I arrived in Egypt, uh, people said he was too old. Uh, I didn't pick him for the first game. We played a friendly uh, against Brazil and Qatar. Uh, instead of complaining about it, he publicly said, uh, because he wasn't playing much at Ali at the time, he said... Uh, I'm not playing much. I have to show, show Bob what I can do. And then he started to play a little bit, and immediately I thought, he's still different than all the other players. And Port Said happened. And I went, you know, I told you, we marched. And a day later, I went to the memorial. And I saw the players, and I saw their faces, and I, I, knew, I knew what they had seen in the locker room. Uh, and I spoke quickly to Treka that night and said, I'm going to come to training at Ali next week. And then I want to speak to you. And I went to Ali and, and at the end I said, uh, can we find a time to speak? And when no one knew about it, uh, he came to my hotel. The two of us sat upstairs and we talked about the possibility of the world cup. And he, he brought a t-shirt. Uh, that he gave me, and it was a, a Brazil 2014 T-shirt. And uh, I said at the end of that meeting, you know, because he still wasn't playing 90 minutes. And I said, uh, look, I don't know whether you're going to play 90 minutes or 45, but uh, I need you in this. Uh, and he was incredible. Uh, he, he got his fitness back. He played at an incredibly high level. Uh, everyone looked up to him. Uh, he's a fantastic man. And so just for everything that he represents, uh, I, I think that's Trigger. 
Next question. What is the best team you have ever coached against and why? Uh, for sure, it's the Spain team, not because we beat them, but because if you think of what happened during that whole period of time, uh, they won the Euros in 2008. Uh, they won the World Cup in 2010, they won the Euros again in 2012. Uh, when you think of everything that went on in that period for both Barcelona and Real Madrid, where so many of the players played their club football. And just the pure quality of, of those players and the kind of football that they played. Uh, yeah, I mean, when we, when we beat them... Uh, uh, in Bloemfontein, they had won, I believe, 35 matches in a row. Uh, and, you know, for all the people who, who said to me then and say to me now that the Confederation Cup didn't mean anything to Spain, um, I went to see Barcelona train at UCLA uh, later that year. And Xavi and Puyol and Pep... Uh, all of them came up to me and talked about our team and the game. And uh, trust me, the Confederations Cup meant something to all those guys. What is the best rivalry you have ever coached in and why? Uh, U.S.-Mexico. Um, the history, uh, obviously, seeing uh, the important games, the way different guys on, on either side have stepped up in different moments. Uh, what it means when you're in qualifying in the games against Mexico, what it means to try to win the hex. Uh, yeah, for all of us that have been lucky enough to be involved in that rivalry, that's always special. Which player in world football do you get the most pleasure out of watching today and why? Uh, yeah, the today part means that, that I have Scout and Instat. So when I watch guys today, that doesn't mean that they're still playing today. So I'm going to say Xavi. Mm. Uh, his, his pure ability to find space and the easy way that he gave his team fluidity and rhythm, uh, the natural way of receiving and always turning the right way the the efficient use of touches the timing the intelligence uh as special as as anything i've ever seen lastly who do you most admire in world football today and why yeah so you gave me this question and i looked quickly at the the first six and i had a few ideas <laughs> And then now I looked at that question and I started thinking, who do I admire? Uh, I admire a lot of people. Uh, I told you about Abutreka. You know, as, as a pure coach, Guardiola, and, and I, I, I certainly want to mention his name today because uh, in this global pandemic, uh, Pep lost his mom. And uh, I've met Pep a few times. I don't know him well. Um, but in the couple of times I met him, I appreciated his passion and his love of the game. Uh, I thought that that was great. Uh, and then, you know, if, if you're talking about coaches in the world these days, as soon as you say Pep, then you have to say Klopp. And, uh, you know, I, I, I talk about football a lot in different ways, but sometimes in its simplest form, I talk about how uh, as a team, if you can, if you can be, it, it, it's like, where is the bar between Barcelona and Liverpool? All right. Barcelona is a team in terms of controlling the game, uh, positional play, uh, just, a feeling that they could always have the ball. Uh, Liverpool, so dynamic. And it was true when Klopp was at Dortmund as well. Dynamic. Uh, you know, he talks about more heavy metal. 
and, and, and so when I gave you some of the things that I think about in football these days, I, I always try to think about how in some moments can you be a team that has control and, and understand positional play, but in other moments, how can you, how can you be more free flowing and more fluid and more uh, vertical and more dynamic? And, and so, you know, I, I've always sort of used this analogy. I used to tell my team in Stabek that, you know, every team has to figure out where you are between Barcelona and Dortmund. And now I'll say between Barcelona and, uh, and Liverpool. And I actually think the same thing works if you were to just take Guardiola and Klopp. Um, you know, as a coach, I think there's a part of me uh, that I love the details of the game. Um, you know, people who have watched training sessions see at times days where I'll stop things and correct the way a guy is receiving the ball, which foot he receives it with. Um, you know, in this, in this back and forth I had with Benny Fallhaber the other day, he was nice. And he said that with all that he learned uh, from me at the national team, that the preseason in 2018, he, he says that was the most he ever learned about football. Um, because he felt that in a club environment where you had things every day, uh, that there was so much that opened up his mind. So I, 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 I always believe that that's an important part of coaching. Um, but I also, then if you go to club to club, I believe in, in the part of coaching that's still human, that's real, that's laughing, that's hugging, that's um, making sure that guys understand that the game's not perfect and that you, you as a, as a team, you've got to have, identity and personality and you got to go for it and uh you know i i talked about our u.s teams and and yeah look i i've read all the things that everybody said i know all the people that said that you know we we, we played a empty bucket or something and uh you know I, I sometimes say that actually clint and landon in reality we played a 4 2 2 2 and if I had told everybody that years ago, everybody would have thought I was a genius. Um, but I just said we played 4-4-2, but we had really good ideas on how important it was for Clint and Landon to move into those pockets, or Benny, if that's where he played, and how we could play through lines and find those guys in good positions, and they would have attackers in front of them, and we would get with from outside backs. And So, so you know, I... I I, I've always tried in my way of coaching to try to find a balance between the details that I love and the, the things that need to be coached in detail every day with a part of personality and a part of uh, being human and a part of saying I'm wrong. And, you know, in my worst moments, yeah, I, I, I know what I look like. Um, you know, I, I know the moments when I cross the line and people think uh, I'm an asshole. Um, but I'm quick to realize that. I'm quick to tell people, uh, look, sorry, you know, uh, that wasn't the right way to handle it. Uh, but I, I'm going to finish. I, I think that's real. You know, I'm, I, I learned a long time ago that as a coach, uh, you can't be afraid of being yourself. Uh, you can't be afraid of making mistakes. You can't be afraid of crossing the line. Uh, and I think that Klopp's got all of that. So, so I think that if you just talk quickly and finish on, on just that balance between the, the incredible detail of, of Pep and, and, and what he's been able to get his teams to do with this uh, humanness. And, and, you know, Klopp, uh, you know, when, when, when we're looking at what's going on in the world right now, um, all of us have real feelings and perspective. And, and I'm lucky. I've been outside the country. I've, I've spent a lot of time in Africa. I know what it's like in, not only in Egypt, but I know what it's like in, in all these places. I, I, I spent five days in December in Ghana at a little academy. And those were incredible days to see these kids. 
and and so uh, humanness and 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 perspective that you know right now we've got people uh, doctors nurses healthcare workers uh, grocery people truck drivers so many people who are out and about keeping us going and uh, uh, you know look my uh, you know a little bit about my parents, but, but in, in its simplest way of saying it, uh, my mom's dad was a plumber and my dad's dad was a carpenter. And my dad worked on both sides of all of that before he got into uh, something that, that was more heating, ventilation and air conditioning. But this idea of, of, of real people and people that don't have things that you have and, and what their lives are all about. Uh, you know, even, even in this world of, of quarantine, uh, you know, it, it's a lot easier to do it if you live in certain places and if you, you've been lucky enough in your life than it is in other situations. And that clearly impacts the numbers that we see around the country. So, uh, the humanness and the perspective, uh, you know, the game is special and those of us that get to work in it every day are really lucky. Um, but you can never lose the connection with all of the people in the world who just to see a game, to meet a player, to kick a ball, man, that's so special to them. And, uh, so to, to me, that's, that's always important. So even in my moments when, uh, you know, I, I lose it a little bit, I, I, I never lose perspective. Well, Bob, we've been doing interviews since 92, so that's 28 years. Uh, you've always treated me with the same amount of respect when I was 18 years old as when I'm 46. Um, thank you for that. These are always some of the most rewarding aspects of the job that I do. Thanks for giving so much of yourself. Good. And uh, best to your wife. She's one of the ones that's uh, giving honest, real information. And man, we need it. Thanks, Bob. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Bob Bradley, as well as producer Harry Swartout, and everyone at Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Remember, if you like the podcast, it would really help us out if you go to Apple Podcasts and provide a rating and a review. And we'd appreciate you recommending the podcast to someone you know. Be safe, everyone. See you next time.